Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're continuing our series on influence. One of the things that I find expert leaders struggle with the most is how do they persuade particularly peers around them to get on board with an idea, to adopt an approach, um, to go along with the change. And typically, when I'm working with experts, they'll think about influence as a rational, logical argument. So logically, one, two, three, four, here's why I'm right. And then get frustrated because it doesn't work. Typically, I find that people then learn they have to build consensus. So they'll do some form of consultative consultation, team, uh, collaboration, consensus building. But rarely do I find people understand effectively how to use negotiation as an influence tactic. Now, we typically think about negotiation as something you do around price or around the sales. But today I want to talk about negotiation as a way of influencing people within the organization. I think you're going to find out it's far more powerful and far more effective than you might have thought. So we're going to start talking about how do you think about negotiation and then we'll move to best practices. And in the very end, we're going to talk to you about how you can make real changes in your own influence styles around negotiation. With me today is John Hoffman. John is president of Design Performance, which is a consulting and training organization focused on negotiation and sales. He's an author, a keynote speaker, and an adjunct professor at Seton Hall, where he has designed the first professional selling courses. I have to say his client list is a dream list. Lots and lots of top clients, including people like AT&T and Dow Chemical, Citibank, Caterpillar, GE Capital, Unilever, and the list could go on. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Wanda. It's a real pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, John, I made a bit of a bold statement at the very beginning that negotiation is an incredibly effective way to influence it. Do you agree or not agree with that? Well, not surprisingly, Wanda, I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to completely agree. agree. Negotiation is really a very powerful influence skill. And unfortunately, most people have a misperception about it. Most of us haven't been trained in it. I know certainly growing up, uh, I was not taught to negotiate. Uh, I was taught to listen and to follow and to go along with. Uh, But when people learn this whole exciting technique that they could start to use to influence, uh, it's very powerful, very powerful influence agent. Okay, now we typically think about negotiate as negotiate for a salary, negotiate for a job, negotiate a price, for example, negotiate for a car. But is that really the best way to think about negotiation? Uh, Probably not, but you're right, Wanda. Most people think about it that way. Uh, In our society in particular, the first time that people come across something called negotiation is often in regard to something around price, and it's usually around a used car. And unfortunately, because most of us are not trained in negotiation, people usually have some sorry tales to tell about their negotiation with a used car dealer. Uh, to the point where a used car dealer has almost become the stereotype for the worst-case scenario in selling. 
But the reality is that most, if not all, of the important decisions that we make in the course of a day or in an organization are made through a process of negotiation. Well, so most decisions are made through a process of negotiation. Give me an example. Sure. So it could be something as simple in your life where you are having a negotiation with a spouse or a child about anything from an activity that you're going to get involved in to a time frame to the way that something might get implemented. In an organization, certainly most of us think of it in terms of a negotiation that incurs at the point of contact with a customer around a price. But in an organization, in the course of the day, there are thousands of negotiations that go on internally and externally. And the sum total of the threads of those negotiations really weave the fabric of both the productivity and the profitability of the organization. So it's happening pervasively. All right. I know that I often say, so one of the complaints that I hear when I'm working with people and coaching people is everybody has way more to do than can be done. Um, most of my clients are doing three, if not four, former roles. And I, they're often saying to me, I can't get it all done. And I say right. to them, do you negotiate, as in negotiate on time frame, negotiate on the level of uh, depth, negotiate on the precision? Is that what you mean? Uh, yes, Exactly. In fact, a good definition of negotiation is that a pro- it's a, really a process of influence that involves trade-offs, and that's really a critical term. Uh, often people have a perception of negotiation that it's more in terms of a, a battle uh, or it involves some type of manipulation when, in fact, it's really a great communication skill. And the other key point here is this notion of trade-offs. So taking it from a price perspective... Often in a company, I'll be talking to a sales manager who's talking to one of their salespeople who will come back from a particular transaction, and they'll say, oh, I negotiated a great deal. And a little bit of investigation tends to find that the salesperson probably gave something away. They dropped the price. They made something better in terms of the terms of the deal without really getting anything in return for it. Um, Negotiation to a lot of people is just coming to a decision versus some trade-off involved. So if, in fact, in the context of a selling situation, um, a salesperson were to give a lower price, it would be a negotiation if they, in fact, got something back from the customer, which might have everything to do with what you just described, Wanda. It could have to do with time frames, implementation, terms. There's generally a lot of area for negotiation that people generally don't think about. Okay, so let me give you a negotiation. Just, in, I'm sorry. In terms of the, uh, the the power of it, in terms of the ability to influence people, negotiation is powerful. But also, negotiation also serves to gain commitment from the other party, because a key concept in negotiation is that there's engagement, and the best negotiations really become problem solving, where we can have a better understanding of both of, of our needs. We can think more creatively about how we might come to solutions. And so the outcome generates commitment from the other party because they have been engaged in the process. But it's a real art to be able to do it well, and most people don't have much of a concept of that particular process. Okay, so let me give you an example recently. Um, I was working with a client. This client is dealing with external customers. 
they were the external customer wants a reduction in fees, cost. What a surprise. And, yeah, no surprise. And the client was arguing that um, we'll give you a small reduction, but that in effect we have given you a substantive reduction if you look over the course of several years. And was a very lovely argument that they put together, uh, very nicely framed in terms of the client benefits and gains and so on, but it left the client unhappy. Mm-hmm. So how would they? How could they have done that in a different way? Is there a different way to approach that? Yes, there is, and probably you know we'll take a look in, in our, our next segment about what are some of the best practices in regard to a process of negotiation. But in the planning phase of negotiation. It sounds as if this uh, supplier thought through some and, and came up with some type of an analysis of the past pricing, which, okay, could be interesting, but is that truly a motivator to the other party? Because it sounds as if the customer wanted something else. And so the question is, what were some of the other needs and desires of that particular client that we might be able to address in the context of the value of what we're offering them. So rather than just trying to make a rational case for why this pricing isn't aligned with past pricing, there's still something missing there. And in fact, one of the things that I'll say specifically about this, Wanda, as a negotiation best practice, is to try to satisfy needs over wants. So let's just say in terms of pricing, a customer wants a better price. That's what they want. However, the need is generally broader, and if the need is satisfied, the want tends to go away. So there might be some aspect of quality that we're introducing to this customer that they're not aware of. There might be some cutting-edge aspect to what we're delivering to them. Uh, We might be uh, giving them a better return on investment as as a result of what we're giving them, and that is what they really need. So, for example, if a customer of mine might object to the pricing, if I'm able to show them what they really need around the quality of what they're getting, so in my business, which is teaching people how to sell and negotiate, if I can show them perhaps even in one sale using a really powerful collaborative negotiating and sales process that they would recoup the money that they would spend on my training, they start to look at it differently. Um, so there's, there's an, an aspect that satisfying needs over wants because the need is really what drives the customer. So it's not just what we think is important to the customer. It's what the customer thinks is important, and that's really where this art comes in, particularly in the planning phase. Okay, so if I take this back to the example of somebody who's overworked, mm-hmm. and a manager comes and says, I need this report from you by tomorrow at 5 o'clock. Often people say, well, which of my other priorities do you not want me to do? And a typical manager response to that is all of them. I want you to do every one of them. (laughs) So there's no negotiation there. Right. It's the management philosophy of the beatings will continue until morale improves. (laughs) (laughs) Or so the employee thinks. But to use your argument, if we stopped and said, instead of which do you not want me to do, which is the rational thing, and instead said to the manager, what is it that you really need out of this report? Precisely. And if yeah. the manager is a good negotiator, one of the things that's important is to identify for people what is negotiable and what is not negotiable. And so if I were to say, we need to get this report done, Wanda, 
and we have to get it done by December the 10th. Can, can, you, can we come up with some ideas as to how we might be able to do that? I understand that you're very busy right now, Wanda. You have a lot of other obligations. Uh, this has become a priority, but I'd like to get your perspective on how we might be able to do this. So whereas the deadline might not be negotiable, there might be some negotiation in how we could do it. And I mentioned that negotiation was about trade-offs. So in, even in before meeting with you, I've thought about some things that I might be able to do for you to reduce some of your workload. So now rather than you just become a pair of hands for me, you've become a partner where we are coming up with some problem-solving but as the manager and as the expert in negotiation, I've outlined where some of those possibilities might be, where we have some potential for some trade-off so that we can mutually meet the deadline. Okay. All right. So I get a sense in this, John, too, that the way you use language makes a huge difference. So I get, if I go back to if I'm the subordinate and I say to, to my manager, you know, let's neg- what is it that you really need here? And I discover that what you really need is a very simple data set that I can generate quite quickly, then we've got a great scenario. But equally, if as the manager, you come back to me and say, fine, I'll do that for you. I I have one client who says, oh, that's unfair for my manager to do that for me, so never mind, I'll do it myself, and then ends up being overworked. Mm -hmm. But the language there of I'll do this part for you if you'll do that part, the language of trade-offs sounds like a more effective language. Very important. Uh, and as I mentioned, we'll talk about some specific strategies, but in a negotiation, probably, or in a, even in an influence situation, probably the worst thing you can say right away is yes. Um, hold off on yes. And before we get to that point, let's do a little bit more exploration. And a good way to propose a trade-off, the magical words are if and then. So rather than saying, okay, I'll get that done by that time frame, Wanda, I might position it as this, which is tentative, and it also gives us an opportunity to take a look at the possibilities. So if I were to say, if, Wanda, I am able to get that done by the 10th, then would you be willing to give me some additional time on Project B so that I can dedicate more time to this? So I haven't committed to anything. I've proposed a trade-off that I've thought through and I know will be reasonable and help me get that particular piece of work done so we can have a discussion about this so you and I become problem solvers rather than opponents trying to wangle away as to who can get more from the other person. So if and then. Mark Twain has a a beautiful statement, and I, I think about this frequently in my world. He said the difference between the right word And the almost right word in a conversation is like the difference between the lightning bolt and the lightning bug. (laughs) You know, you can can use an accurate word. You can hear something described precisely, and it's like, ah, I get it. Uh, Something else, not so much. So precision in language is certainly an important part of negotiation. Okay, so I like this notion that we're going to think, first off, I need to understand somebody's needs. I need to open with the needs rather than focusing on what you said you wanted immediately. The worst thing I'm going to say is yes. I love that phrase. And then I open the discussion. It's not a demand. It's a discussion. If I do this, then will you do that? And see exactly. it as a discussion, as a trade-off. Mm-hmm. Okay. Perfect. And I would say, Wanda, even a lot of this happens in the planning phase before you begin the conversation. Uh, it's difficult because a lot of these conversations are tense, either even with a colleague or a customer or a, 
personal relationship. And if you can think through beforehand, how can I position value of what I'm asking the other person to do? What do they really need? And that's a real differentiating point in an expert negotiator. They don't go into the negotiating think, negotiation thinking just what I want to have happen. The, the more effective negotiator thinks through what do you want to have happen? What's important to you? And secondly, if I'm going to trade something off, I think through what is the value to you and what is the cost to me so I can think about how I might prioritize something that I might trade off so I don't give away something too quickly that turns out to be problematic. Okay. I like that. So I'm focused much more on the value for the other party. Exactly. I want to focus on equally value for the other party and what I want to have happen. Both of those I consider. Okay. All right, fabulous. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to take an example, and then we're going to talk more specifically about the details of how you do best practices in negotiation. With me today is John Hoffman, who's an expert in consulting and training people on negotiation and sales. And we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is John Hoffman. John is president of Designed Performance, which is a consulting and training organization focused on negotiation and sales. He's an author, a keynote speaker, and has worked with a load of high-profile clients 
on this whole practice of negotiation. Now, we were just talking about what makes for great negotiation, and it isn't car sales, used car sales. It's actually the exact opposite. It's not of what I'm trying to get out of the other person, but instead what it is I'm trying to provide. So John was just saying that part of what master negotiators do is planning. I want to think in advance not what you asked for, but what you fundamentally need. What's the value of that to you? What's the cost to me? What do I want to have happen and what do you want to have happen? And I start not with yes, but if I do this, then can you do that, which leads to a discussion. So fascinating. So John, give us an example of a brilliant negotiation. Okay, let me start with one that I think everyone might be familiar with, and I'll give you a couple. The first one has to do with the TV show, I Love Lucy, that I think many of us and even my kids are familiar with. And Desi Arnaz was a brilliant negotiator. So here's an example of him having thought through what might be a really effective trade-off in terms of cost and value. On the set of I Love Lucy... Desi Arnaz came up with the idea of having a second camera. All of the I Love Lucy shows to a certain point had been shot dead on with one camera, and Desi Arnaz thought it might be really interesting to have a second camera to get a different perspective on the acting. So he went to the producers of I Love Lucy, and he said, you know, I'd really like to have a second camera. And the producer said, sure, we can have one, but you're going to pay for it. So Desi Arnaz said, okay, uh, I'm happy to do that if... I do that. Would you give me the films of the shows that we recorded? Can I have the rights to those films once we've finished doing that? And at that point, there was no such concept of reruns and the returns on reruns. So the producer says, sure, you pay for the camera, and everything that we have filmed is yours. Uh, To this day... (laughs) I can't imagine the millions and millions of dollars that have been generated by having the rights to the uh, replays of the I Love Lucy shows, which apparently runs 24-7 around the world. But it's a perfect example of he thought through something that, at that point, and to the producers, was really low cost. And to him, he had the feeling that the price that he was going to pay for the camera would be offset easily by the money he might be able to make in the reruns. So a good example of thinking through cost and value, and certainly in his case, it really turned out to be something extremely profitable for him. Fabulous. A second, so, um, a second, I'm sorry, go ahead, Wanda. I was going to say, I love that because it's not that I'm going to go to the producer and say, let me tell you logically why a second camera is going to really work. <laughs> To which the producer is going to say, we never do it that way. Why should we do it that way now? And you'll go around in circles. Mm -hmm. So make a trade-off because it's not going to cost the producer anything and you get a huge grade uh, gain for it. Okay, so second example. Second example would be Haagen-Dazs ice cream. I had an opportunity to to work with Haagen-Dazs. And Haagen-Dazs, if they introduce a new product, and Haagen-Dazs ice cream is something, a side note that's interesting about ice cream world and labels and, and precision in language, Haagen-Dazs is considered to be a super premium product. And what that means in the food world, to get a super premium designation, you have to have a certain amount, and I mean a lot of fat and sugar in your product to get a premium designation. But anyway, it does make the ice cream taste very good. And Haagen-Dazs at one point was introducing sorbets into their product line, which was much healthier product um, in terms of content. 
And when they were going to introduce it, they asked me if I could work with them because they wanted to eliminate what is called a slotting fee when a company introduces a new product into a supermarket. And at the time, the slotting fee would be $2,000 to put this particular sorbet into that particular uh, section of the dairy aisle aisle, uh, for Haagen-Dazs. So they said, could you work with us because this is going to get so expensive because it's not just the $2,000 for all of the A&Ps. Every individual A&P, many delis, ShopRites, Piggly Wiggly, all the other stores that are out there, $2,000. So here's where the planning comes in. So we did research, and one of the things that we found in our research was that if Haagen-Dazs was going to introduce this sorbet, and some stores had it and some didn't, people would go to the store with the sorbet to get it. Now, I lived in New York City for a long time, and I know if they didn't have the peanut butter that I liked at the Gristiti's across the street, I'd walk another three blocks over, and I'd go to the other store, and I'd get my peanut butter because it had the right kind that I wanted. While I was at that other store, I would tend to buy my milk and my eggs and everything else that I needed. And Haagen-Dazs in their research found that as well, that by having this product, Consumers would spend more, you'd get more consumers, and they would spend more in your supermarket. So when we were working with the sales uh, associates from Haagen-Dazs and teaching them in really solid practices and negotiation, uh, what we had as value to offer the customer was, if you have this product in your store, we can show you that you will have an an additional amount of product. So, you know, the funny thing uh, that happened was... um, that the, uh, when the Haagen-Dazs salespeople were selling in, they found that the supermarkets were willing to forego the slotting fee. They said, oh, we didn't realize that. So by educating them, so what we shared with them was information, and as a result of the information that we shared with them, they were willing to say, okay, we don't need it. But we also had a backup, and we said, if they still want to, us to have to pay the slotting fee, what we could offer them was that we would put in our, on our billboards and in the advertising that we did on the radio, uh, we would mention their supermarket. So often when you hear a commercial, you'll say, and this can be found at Walgreens, uh, which cost Haagen-Dazs nothing but really had high value for the customer. So again, an analysis going into the, the uh, discussion, into the negotiation, to find out where there was value for the customer uh, prevented Haagen-Dazs from having to trade anything off at that point, and both parties were happy. So that uh, we often talk about this as a win-win. That sounds like a win-win-win-win-win. Precisely. I love that. So mm-hmm. you're working to understand what do we have that we can largely give away that has value to the other party. Um, and in the exchange for that, we're going to request something else like a reduction in sliding fees or elimination of sliding fees. Now, this sounds like it takes a lot of planning, John, that you can't just do this the day before you're ready to go make a pitch. Exactly. Um, if we were going to take a look at what are some of the you know, best practices in negotiation, uh, here's a very simple model to follow. Um, it's called P2N2. means that there are two P words and that there are two N words. So the first piece and really the foundation of, uh, foundation of strong negotiating is the planning that goes into it. And some of the differentiating behaviors of highly successful negotiators are, first of all, I mentioned that you know, they define a good outcome for both parties. They're thinking in terms of what I want and what the other party needs. And the second piece that they're, they're thinking about is how can I 
emphasize the value of what I would like to have happen. And, and by emphasizing the value, emphasizing it in the context of what the other customer needs and wants. So can I write, you know, in thinking about this, I might not even have to trade something off if I can be persuasive. And I think in the negotiation example with haagen we saw that. But I'm thinking about where is value. And then two other key things that they do is they identify potential trade-offs and they prioritize them. So I say, okay, if we cannot do this by showing them the value of having the sorbet, what might be something else that I can trade off? And I think about that trade-off in terms of the concept of value to the other party and cost to me. And in the cogn situation, value to the other party was high to have, to have some free advertising and also to be associated with the haagen brand. And it was very low cost for haagen to have to do that. Because sometimes in the heat of the situation where we're negotiating, in an, in an effort to just win the other person over, we'll offer something and then walk away and say, oh, my goodness, I had no, oh, now I'm realizing what I gave away and what the cost is that going to be to us is just overwhelming. And once it's out there, it's very difficult to get that back. So the planning is really the foundation for strong negotiating. Okay, so planning. What's next in the best, best practices? So that would be the second P. And so what we do is the least effective negotiators, they start negotiating right away. They start trading or they respond immediately to an objection. So let's say in a selling situation uh, where the customer might say, okay, it costs too much, and, then it, and the salesperson might start giving things away. In an internal situation, uh, maybe the boss, the colleague asks for something, and we don't even think about it, and we say yes right away, and then we find out later that there are real consequences for it. So we want to spend some time in this concept of persuasion. And persuasion is two differentiating factors, two key, different key differentiating factors in, in top negotiators. One is they think through where value is to the other party. So they think about need and value to the other party. And the other piece that they think about is how can they provide evidence to the other party? So rather than just saying, trust me, or this will be okay, if I can give you some specific, uh, specific evidence, uh, maybe I can give you a testimonial for someone, uh, I start to be able to be persuasive before I've even gotten into needing the tool of negotiation. So it's planning, and then the second piece is persuading. Fabulous. So in each of these times, I'm thinking, what is the need, not the want, of the other right. party? What's the value of what I can offer to the other party versus the exactly. cost to me? Okay, and what's the priorities? Exactly. Okay? All Wonderful. right, so you said there's two ends. What are the ends? The other end is, the first end is negotiate. So I've tried to persuade, and I have a better understanding now because a critical part of persuasion, Wanda, and, and this is, if you take a look at research in people who are most effective in influencing and selling and leading, you'll see that the number one skill is listening. It's a long lost art. So I'm listening to the customer. I'm listening to the other party. I'm listening to the person that I'm having this discussion with, and I'm really trying to understand what's important to them. And so using that as a, as a basis, when I move into negotiation now, uh, we, we started to talk about this a bit earlier, if I propose something using these very powerful words, if and then. So in the case of an internal negotiation that might be around timeframes. If, Wanda, we are able to move the timeframe back one week, 
then would you be able to take on this other project? So, again, it's put out there as an opportunity for us to have a discussion, to think through it. That's really important is the if and then. The other way that if and then can be used, it might be open-ended. So I might say, if I am able to get that work to you in another week, then what can you do for me so that it will free me up? And, and that one is interesting because you might come up with something and say something I hadn't even thought about that's okay with you uh, that might be really beneficial to me. So the if-then is really very important. Um, just one other piece in here in terms of something to avoid, Wanda, has to do with when you're trying to be persuasive and getting into the negotiation is to avoid irritators. Often when people try to influence, they start using words like, oh, this will be great or this is terrific, it's fair, it's reasonable, this is a very generous offer. You know, that's all in the eyes of the person that you are negotiating with. And research has shown when people use those words, people start to get more defensive, uh, they become more critical, they become, uh, they become less um, engaged in the negotiation, they start to become more uh, calcitrant. So uh, making sure that you avoid irritators is an important part of this moving from persuasion to negotiation. I love that um, because I often say in working with people and helping them understand interpersonal relationships that the moment you start using adjectives to talk about the other person, mm-hmm. so this is so a great, generous, fair, terrific, fabulous, or adjectives, and they you're saying in negotiation they create defensiveness and get people less engaged, but they also happen to get you in trouble in interpersonal dynamics. Okay, John, we're going to do an interesting thing. So we've been talking about the ideal process for negotiation. We've talked about P2N2. We've talked about the planning. We've talked about the persuasion, the kind of values and um, data and testimonial I can offer. And we've talked about then moving into negotiation after you've listening, been listening using the if-then. Now, there's one more in, but we're right. going to take a break, and we'll do it when we come right back. So I'm with John Hoffman. We're talking about negotiation. We'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Sam Nussbaum, WellPoint's Chief Medical Officer. We proudly support the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together to provide children with a healthier start in life. Visit marchofdimes.org. 
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is John Hoffman, who's president of Designed Performance, um, a business that focuses on consulting and training in negotiation and sales. John has been talking with us about practices in negotiation, and he's made a couple of points that I just want to reiterate. I really rather like them. One is that the precision you use in your language makes an enormous difference in the effectiveness. The second is understanding just how much planning it takes to think through what is it the other person needs, the other party needs, versus what they've said they want. What's the value of that and what's the cost to me? Plus, in addition, what do I want as a negotiator? And then to see it as an unfolding process where I'm listening, gathering insight, understanding perspectives, seeing what really makes a difference, and I engage in a discussion, if this, then that in a way that opens up rather than makes it in a competitive. And the other point I want to make is I love this thing at the end that John just said, when you use language like, this is great, this is fabulous, this will be perfect, this is fair, it tends to disengage the other party, so to stay away from the evaluative language. Now, John was just reviewing with us best practices in negotiation, and he has a, an acronym for it called P2N2. First B is planning, making sure I understand the needs and the value of the other party and what I want and what my priorities and potential trade-offs are going to be. Two is to use persuasion, which is evidence, testimonials, something else that will show the person the value of what it is I'm offering. Number three is the end, which is to begin to negotiate. And in this one, listening is absolutely critical. And again, the process is if I can do this by then, Can you do something for me or what can you do for me? And then, John, what's the final in? And this is really a critically important part of it, Wanda. Where most negotiations fall apart is at the point where the other person agrees. Because there's a tendency to think, oh, my God, I'm done. I got through this. We got this. I've got what I wanted. And this is the point where you really have to bear it and nail down everything to make sure that both parties are in agreement. The most negotiations fall apart after the other side agrees because it hasn't really been nailed down effectively. So here's some examples of how to nail it down. So a good way to transition into the close of the negotiation is to sum up your understanding of what we've agreed to so far and to test with the other person. Is that correct, Wanda? Is that your understanding? So we have confirmation. So there's a paraphrasing, there's a summarizing of what we've agreed to. The second piece of this that's really critical is that we identify the next steps to make sure that we're going to actually act on this. And it could be anything from signing a contract at this point to, and the important piece here is writing down 
what the agreed-to next steps will be in a very specific time-framed fashion, and this significantly increases the probability that whatever agreed to well, was agreed to will actually get implemented. And so the top negotiators are very good at getting a payoff from this terrific job of planning, persuading, and negotiating that they've just engaged in, and for the benefit of both parties to sum of, summarize, clarify, and identify the next steps so that we will be able to move forward in terms of implementation. Interesting. You know, it sounds like such a simple process, this notion of, and we think everybody understands because we were all sitting there and we all nodded our heads, mm-hmm. uh, but there is something that puts a nice note on the synthesis of exactly what it is we have understood in, from mm-hmm. each other as well as what it is we've agreed to do. And I find some of the best speech givers, the ones that move large numbers of people to do new things, use exactly that kind of technique in their speech. They're summarizing sort of the current state of affairs, what the opportunities are, they're clarifying what needs to happen next, and they're giving people the next step to do right now. So there's an immediate action to take. Exactly. And, and, and the other thing to know, one is that most, well, there's research that shows this, people remember most what they hear last. And so, again, there's a tendency often for a person to be kind of like so excited over the fact that they've got agreement that they don't want to interfere with anything, and so they just kind of make an assumption that we're all on the same page. The better negotiators are tenacious about making sure that we have this written down, a drafted agreement, next steps, and as you just beautifully articulated, this notion of summing up the key points is very, very powerful. And people remember that, and now we have a commitment to move forward. And again, what we're trying to do is increase the probability that our agreement will be implemented. Great. Okay, so I have planning. How much time do I spend in planning? Planning is proportional to the amount of time that you have with the other person. Um, and so it's interesting. So if I was going to have a, you know, anticipating a short amount of time, proportionally I would spend more time planning. Um, but I would say that the research indicates that the best negotiators spend 400% more time planning than less effective negotiators. Wow, 400% <laughs> more time planning. Four times as much percent uh, time planning than less effective negotiators. Okay, and now planning, again, is not just rehearsing what I'm going to say. Planning oh, no, that is, is a part of it, and that's a really interesting yeah. piece, Wanda. Um, what the best negotiators do is they have a template that they use. So they have a, I'm going to be negotiating, so I sit down and say, if, you know, it's a planner. And simple, it doesn't have to be a nine-page planner, simple is best. And so it might have, okay, what am I trying to get from the negotiation? What does the other party say they want? What do they really need? What kind of resistance do I anticipate? We don't have time for this. We've tried this before. We don't have the money. And what are some ways that I will be able to enrich, elevate, educate the person around value, help them better understand how they will get a return on investment from it? And a third key piece is that they prioritize trade-offs based on cost and value. Um, But I don't want to minimize what you just said there, Wanda, because there's been quite a bit of research over the last few years um, and two of the great books on this are Talent is Overrated and The Talent Code, where 
these investigators have tried to determine what are the factors that differentiate people who are successful from people who are less successful. And the research clearly in both cases, and even Malcolm Baldrige had in that book called Outliers, where he did some investigating into it, but the three books came to the conclusion that people are more successful when they practice. So often we just think about, okay, all right, I'm ready, let's go out there and do it. The better people practice and get feedback, so when they're out there, they do much better. Um, I like to think of the analogy of professional baseball players. They go to spring training every year. These are the most gifted, talented baseball people. They've been stars their entire lives. And when they go to spring training every year, they focus on the fundamentals of batting and hitting and base running and bunting. And every year they do that. And before a game, the batters are out there and the players and fielders are out there practicing for a couple hours. But we tend in our personal lives and in our business lives to underestimate the value of some rehearsal and practice. Uh, We all know if we can just do something one time beforehand, whether it's a speech or a presentation, um, get some feedback, we're going to be stronger. So I really want to reinforce what you said there about the importance of rehearsal. Okay. It's interesting that you say this whole notion of investing in fundamentals. Neen James, who's a master at getting things done in time, she calls it folding time versus managing time, says that every year she invests significantly in the things that she's really good at. And it's that notion of just getting better at the things that you're really good at. All right. So back to negotiation. We don't have four times the best negotiators spend 400% more time in planning. So planning is a bit of rehearsing what you're going to say, but it's also using a template where I'm looking at what do I want? What does the other person say they want? What do they actually need? My understanding of their need. What are the potential trade-offs that I'm willing to make? And how am I going to prioritize those? So I don't just give everything away immediately. Anticipate the resistance and what persuasion techniques am I going to use for that resistance? So things like an education, a testimonial, a data, an evidence, something that makes it more effective. Exactly. I like, John, this notion that negotiation has a very straightforward unfolding process and that if you follow the process, you dramatically increase the chances that you're going to be successful. So we do planning, which we just reversed. You do the persuasion, which is, you know, where's the evidence I'm going to give them to convince them? Um, I'm going to negotiate, which is a language issue where I say if, then, and open to a discussion. And then the final one is I'm going to nail it down, which is to close, to conclude, to summarize, to write it down, and increase the chances of commitment. Exactly. And what's interesting about that one to two is whether it's an internal negotiation, an external negotiation, and a negotiation around pricing, all negotiation require the same essential skill sets. So okay, which you are? think about it, you know, you would want to plan, you would want to think about, oh, how can I be persuasive, but really take into consideration value and, and, and uh, what the benefit is to the other party. And if I'm going to negotiate, what will I negotiate? What's cost and value? And how am I going to nail it down? It's a really nice, simple, powerful template for any negotiation that you might get involved in. Okay, and it works as well persuading my boss that I don't have to meet that deadline the way he just articulated it, as well as persuading my peers that they have to complete some compliance issue 
or a client um, to accept a change in price. Exactly. Fabulous. I'm beginning to understand why people believe that negotiation is such a powerful way of influencing. And besides which, if it's done correctly, it doesn't have to feel combative. It doesn't have to feel defensive and argumentative. Okay? Exactly. We're trying to take that out. Most of the best negotiators, they are terrific at collaboration. They're great at getting the other person engaged, getting us to look at this as something where there's opportunity for both parties or for both groups, whatever it might be, and minimal amount of or non-existent amount of combativeness. Okay, fabulous. All right, we're going to take one last break. When we come back, I want to focus a little bit on gender. There was a lot said about women and whether or not they are good negotiators or not good negotiators. And often I find that women are not terribly enthusiastic about negotiation. It doesn't sound very effective. So when I come back and talk that, we'll also give a few hints on how you can get started in improving some changes in your own negotiation. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is John Hoffman. He's president of Designed Performance, which focuses on consulting and training in negotiation and sales. He's an author, a keynote speaker, has worked with some fabulous companies, and as we've discovered in the last segment, a powerful um, guide on how to do negotiation. Now, we often think about negotiation as a combative process, like a used car salesman as a stereotype. 
John has just been talking about negotiation as a very powerful collaborative format. When you take the right framework and you approach it from the value that the other person wants, their needs, the value you can offer, and the trade-offs that will be good for you and good for the other. And John has a process called P2N2, fabulous, simple, straightforward way of thinking about how to do persuasion. Okay, so John, I want to turn for a minute and talk about women. There's been a lot written. Deborah Kolb, in particular, is one of my favorite favorites, and her book is Her Place at the Table, mm-hmm. about whether women are effective negotiators or not. I know when I work with women, coaching, consulting, training, that typically they see negotiation as a nasty thing, mm-hmm. not as a good thing. What's your experience for women and negotiating? Well, you know, I've been doing research over the last couple of years on a program called Women Negotiate because it's so clear from the research that women are much less likely to initiate a negotiation than a man. And it has nothing to do with the aptitude of women because research consistently shows that, again, that although women possess these extraordinary communication skills, so if you were to take a look at the verbal skills of women, if you were to take a look at the listening skills, um, there's a book called The Female Brain where this is a neurologist and a woman talks about how a woman's brain, the centers for verbal and listening skills are 10 times larger than those in men. Uh, most women probably wouldn't need to have the research to know that, but uh, at any rate, and that is the prime critical negotiating skill, but also... Women outscore men in terms of cooperation skills, problem-solving skills, empathy skills, analytical skills. All of those skills line up almost one-to-one with the behaviors of world-class negotiators, but they're less likely than men to initiate and conduct the negotiation. So, the so why do you... Is, why? Yeah, why? <laughs> well, it, it seems to be that there are some social stereotypes around a woman initiating a negotiation that they are not being feminine, they're not being womanlike, perhaps, uh, they're being too aggressive, and so there's a concern that, oh, gee, if I do that, I'll just do what I'm supposed to do, oh, I won't rock the boat, I'll just kind of go along with it, uh, versus engaging in the negotiation to the benefit not only of the individual woman, but to the organization in terms of the ideas that they have and the perspectives that they might have. Um, so... And it's not a matter of men being great negotiators, because I would say in, in my work, equally men and women generally have not had much training whatsoever in negotiation. It's, again, incredibly powerful influence and collaboration building skill. So the question is, how can we have women, and, and even men, so I'll put them both in there, have more of an appreciation for the value of having women more engaged in negotiations? Okay, fabulous. One of my clients, to be unnamed, gets frustrated because the women in his organization never negotiate salary, pay, rises, bonus with him. The men do. 
And he thinks that that leads to an unfair advantage for women and give him credit for at least noticing it and doing something. And so he has been threatening to actually post ranges of salaries and bonuses for the entire group just so people have the data on where they should be negotiating. I don't know that that's going to end up being a good strategy at the end of the day, but I applaud his effort in trying to get women to recognize that this is an acceptable thing to do. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I would say, again, certainly a lot of it has to do with kind of cultural you know, barriers and stereotypes, but what he's doing is exactly part of what should be getting done. But I would say in addition to perhaps persuading people, uh, kind of coaxing them along by publishing that kind of data, I think to start to train people, both men and women, in appropriate negotiating salaries, is, excuse me, salaries, uh, Freudian slip there, appropriate negotiating strategies is a critical part of the whole, whole puzzle. Um, and then the second piece I would say, particularly for, for male, and it, you know, it comes with female leaders as well, uh, that they do encourage women to negotiate. So recognizing that there are some stereotypes and barriers around that, that if they can kind of provide a path for them, not only in terms of both of the encouragement, but also in terms of training them in skills, because again, women are so well equipped with extraordinarily strong talents in this area, uh, and to, again, to be able to unleash that in the organization to, benefit, to the benefit of everyone in an organization. Fabulous, John. Great insights here, and I love the notion that managers can take some responsibilities in improving people's skill in negotiating, and we've talked about how to do that with the P2N2 process. John, thanks for being with me today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Wanda. My great pleasure. Okay, so John Hoffman, um, Designed Performance is the company, in case you're interested. With me next week is Lawrence Lewis. Lawrence is a master at getting people to do stuff, particularly around big change initiatives. So we're going to take yet another look at influence from a different angle, not from a negotiation. So join us next week for Lawrence Lewis. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week.